Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastured Pig Podcast. I uh, appreciate you all taking the time to uh, to listen to our interviews and, and what we have and our ramblings about pastured pigs. Um, I want to get into our interview here in a second, but just want to do some quick updates. Uh, the 4th of July weekend has passed. I hope everyone, I uh, hope all of you fellow Americans that celebrate uh, Independence Day had an opportunity to take a break or at least get a project done you've been putting off. Uh, we had the opportunity to go away uh, from the farm for about five days, actually, and spend some time about uh, it's about three and a half hours away at our camp in the um, upper elevations of uh, mountains of West Virginia. Had a great time. Um, just got an opportunity to, to relax and just enjoy uh, some time away from the farm. And it's one of those opportunities to to recharge the batteries, to kind of think about processes, um, you know, kind of step back and look at what's going on uh, instead of being in the you know in the muck and mire every day and and having a different perspective. It it, it helped to step back and look and see what uh, uh, what we've got going on and kind of do some assessments there. So it's it was great. It, you know, came back really had the batteries recharged, really ready to take on these projects. Um, having that energy to to really want to uh, dive into it deeply, uh, you kind of figure Fourth of July is the uh, you know the halftime of the season if you uh, if you're in the uh, climate zone like we are. So uh, just to take away from that is if you get the opportunity to take a break, uh, be sure to factor that in somehow. Everyone needs a Sabbath. Everyone needs a respite uh, to to take a break from their hard work. So if if you didn't get a chance to take a, a, a day or two off on the 4th of July, uh, find some time to to get that break. If you have to hire a farm sitter, do it. If you have to spend some money here, uh, here or there to get stuff covered, do it. It's worth the uh, opportunity to, to take a break and to, uh, to rest and, and recharge those batteries. Well, okay, so uh, today's interview is a little different than what we've been doing obviously we've been talking to pork producers directly and talking about their setup well this is uh kind of a uh the beginning of a, of, of a branching out in the pastured pig podcast uh today we're talking to dan Prophet, aka butcher pete and dan runs a mobile processing uh unit in the new england area he's actually up in new hampshire and he's got a, a, a really a great passion for what he does. Uh, he's very um, has a very humane approach to butchering uh, the animals that he does. Uh, has has a real heart for the animals' uh, care. Uh, really appreciate his um, his sentiment when it, it comes to describing what he does. Um, it, it's also interesting to talk to somebody who is you can tell really loves his work. Uh, Dan's not in it necessarily for the money per se, as in this is, I'm not going to put words in his mouth. It seems like he's, uh, he's in it because of the passion. He, he loves what he does. He's been, he's been butchering for years. He has, uh, some experience, some great experience in that area. And it's really exciting to talk to somebody that's that passionate about what they do. And yeah, I hope we all have that passion. Uh, we all have that love, uh, to some degree for what we do, whether it's 
you know, raising our, our pigs or or anything else we do in life, that we can have that same passion uh, that makes life that much more enjoyable. Well, I'm not going to get uh, too deep in the weeds there as far as the philosophy of mobile butchering, but uh, we'll let Dan uh, tell his story. And and uh, we went a little long on this one. I think we went a little over an hour in our discussion, but uh, I, I think it's it's worth it. We could have gone, uh, I think we could have gone two hours because we really got into some really good discussions of of not only what he does, but how that fits into government regulation and, and all those uh, type of things that get some of us producers blood boiling. All right, without further ado, uh, here's Butcher Pete. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast. Again, so glad that you all take the time to download our podcast and listen to us as we talk about everything to do with pastured pigs. And today is going to take we're going to take a deviation from uh, our typical uh, ho- our, our typical interviewee here. Our typical guest is normally somebody raising pigs on pasture, and we talk about their experiences here. But now we're going to kind of get on the other side of the process, kind of the tail end side, and we're going to talk to Dan Prophet, or AKA Butcher Pete, who is a mobile processor. And he has a really good story. I really like his uh, attitude and his approach towards uh, mobile processing. So I'm going to let him tell this story, but uh, let's get right into meeting Matt. Hello, Dan, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, there, Troy. Thanks for having me on. All right. So, uh, yeah, I've obviously got to ask the question. So uh, before we get into all the details here, so your name's Dan Prophet, but you're Butcher Pete. How, how, did, how did we make that connection with that moniker there? Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, when I was rolling around a lot of names in my head about um, what we were going to call it. That's the one that stuck in my head. And uh, it comes from an old song uh, by a guy named Roy Brown. And uh, a lot of people ask about it, and I find uh, that, it, you know, it is a strange place for the origin to come from. But I listen to all kinds of different music. And, of course, a song about a butcher perked my ears up the first time I heard it. And um, I always had it on my playlist for when I was cutting meat and stuff. And, you know, um, that's where it came from. You know, when I was try- when I was trying to come up for names for the company, I was trying to go with something else. But that was the thing that was sticking in my head. So I said, you know what, Butcher Pete, and then I got a built-in theme song if I ever start doing commercials, you know. There you go, yeah. Yeah, well, that definitely sticks in your head. You'll you'll, you'll remember Butcher Pete for sure. That's right. Okay, well, let's talk about um, let's talk about your setup and your operations. So, first of all, where are you located, and what kind of uh, region do you cover? We're uh, up here in New England. Uh, the, our cooler is located in Walpole, New Hampshire. That's where we do our processing. And but we'll travel out to. I mean, we've been at, as far out as Cold Spring, New York. Um, uh, I've done jobs in New York, Vermont, Massachusetts, um, New Hampshire, looking at Maine possibly for some bookings this fall. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll basically go anywhere within reason, um, uh, between Vermont and New Hampshire, um, for all the New Hampshire jobs I can process at my Walpole cooler. Um, and, uh, we just kind of go anywhere. That's kind of the whole point. Um, a lot of our clients are people who either, um, don't believe in the slaughterhouse system or they want to they're having trouble loading their animals onto the uh onto the trailer or all kinds of different things there's a lot of different reasons people don't want to take their animals to the slaughterhouse yeah yeah so uh, you have to help me with the geography here so if uh, if you're headquartered in, in walpole new hampshire and you go as far as maine and and in northern new york what, what kind of distance are we talk about here miles and hours as far as out and back uh, well, we, uh, the, the, the trip to New York was like three and a half hours, but that was, you know, that was a, a certain job where we just did everything right on site. 
And um, for those jobs, it can be economical. I mean, of course, the client will pay a travel fee, but it can be economical for us to just roll our trailer up there and do everything right on site. Um, we're getting a little busy at this point to be doing stuff right on site, but you know, um, it, it's still a possibility. Hmm. Yeah, well, this, this is fascinating. There's there's all kinds of questions that pop in my head, so you'll have to forgive me if I jump around like a cricket. But um, so so with this mobile setup, um, I guess we need to explain exactly because we've had some people on the podcast that talk about out west they have what they call mobile butchers, but they're just simply taking to the pig to the point of being halved, and then it gets right. delivered to a processor. So so explain for our listeners exactly how far you take this. We take it all the way down to sausage and bacon. Um, uh, I, my training as a cutter um, was in a retail sense. I started off at my neighborhood butcher shop when I was 16. Um, when I was in my 20s, I went to Whole Foods, and I worked with Whole Foods for 12 years. I had a great career with them. They were a really good company. And I cut meat all around the country, in New Mexico, New Hampshire, um, Boston. And I learned a lot of different cutting techniques. I learned a lot of different sausage making techniques. And um, so when I came back home, um, I had uh, some friends who own a farm here in New Hampshire. It's called Howling Hill Farm. And um, I started a farmhand with them part-time, and um, that's where I learned to slaughter on site. So the actual, you know, the slaughtering process is the part that I'm newest at. And um, so, you know, the, the butchers who take it to another butcher, I'm the other butcher that they take it to. Hmm. So, you know, um, at this point, I just handle the entire process myself. During the busier parts, I have people that will come and volunteer and help me. Um, but I, it's a one-man show right here from the moment I walk up and say hello to the pig to the moment it comes back to you and, and vac seal as sausage. Yeah, wow. Wow, so... um so let's talk about your setup for a little bit then. So uh, a mobile unit, I assume that's an enclosed trailer that rolls up. Uh, you obviously have the tools that you need. So when you did the New York gig, for example, you drove uh, three, three and a half hours down. You set up, you dispatched, you went all the way to, to a finished product there. So what type of equipment, how, how big of a trailer, how much equipment are we talking about here? Okay, well, check this out. This is this is the surprising thing. You need surprisingly little equipment, okay. and uh, you know, not to throw gasoline on the flames of my competition, but you really don't need that much to do it. When we went and did the New York job, uh, we didn't bring the trailer. Um, that was also a job where we were um, breaking it down into primals for a chef who was going to basically handle it from there. Hmm. But if I were to go out and do everything um, from scratch, I mean, last year before I had the trailer, I could fit an entire butcher shop in the bed of my Toyota Tacoma. Um, you, you know, you need a couple tables, a grinder, reciprocating saw, um, uh, a saw to actually break the animal. I, I use a, um, and this is crazy. I, I need to change this now that I'm getting more business, but in, in the place of a bandsaw, I just have a DeWalt, um, multi-tool, you know what I mean? Oh, it, it's just an off oscillating multi-tool. Yeah. Um, you use that with a knife and that takes care of the animal. I mean, um, it's a tedious process, but when you're growing from scratch, it's, it, it, it kind of was a brilliant idea. And using little tools like that and just having the knowledge, I mean, I can break an entire animal down with a, a single knife. You don't really need that much if you know where to cut and how to cut. And um, so the trailer is, is mostly for refrigeration. You don't even really need it. Um, most of the year, it's cold enough, not most of the year, but 
about six months of the year here in New England, it's it's cold enough that you can just go without the trailer. Yeah. Um, but I mean, really, all you need is a way to hoist the animal, a way to dispatch the animal, a knife to break it down and skin it, and then a saw for the end. Um, it's it's a surprisingly small amount of equipment. Now, at the same time, you could go the other route and have your quarter million dollar USDA rig that has a bathroom and running water on it. Right. But I mean, this is something that happened to me. I didn't build a business plan and go out and build, you know buy all my equipment and stuff. It just started happening as word got around that people knew that I was doing it. My phone started ringing, so it's been like I get this little piece of equipment, I get this little piece of equipment, but I've been getting by on my skill at butchery, essentially. Right. Yeah. That's your. That's your. That's where you were trained. That's where you have the most experience. So, like you said, this is kind of a. Uh, experience on the back end now the front end is just a matter of convenience and as as you see the need and as people request it then it, it starts to make more sense to be involved in those areas right so and, and okay oh, continue sorry sorry no, no i was going to change the subject so, so keep going no i was just going to finish up by saying you know uh, uh, every piece of equipment that i get makes it easier makes the process smoother but i mean um if you really know what you're doing all you need is a knife and a table and some elbow grease okay so the New York gig, uh, so I would assume to travel, like I said, you're getting busier now, so may not travel those distances as far but, uh, or as much, but when you're traveling that distance, is there was there a minimum that you had to do, but is there also a maximum that you can do? I mean, is there only so much that, that you can do in, in, a, in a logical time? Um, yeah, that's, that, that's a very variable question, but I'll tell you what. It, it, the New York gig was at the beginning when – word was just kind of getting out about me and um we we kind of me me and caitlin um my girl uh we we saw it as a a field trip an opportunity to go out and do something cool in a faraway place uh we did make money off the job but at this point yeah i mean you'd probably have to have at least five head for me to go out there and do that now and what i would do at that distance is just sit up set up shop right on your farm and um and do the whole thing right there. It wouldn't make any economical sense to drive it three and a half hours back to the cooler. So yeah, you know, certain constraints are, um, as a matter of my own success, getting put on me, and you know, you got to roll with it. But what I'm finding is that there's a lot of people out there who are in need of this service, and um, moreover, they want to get away from the slaughterhouse thing. If they, especially if they don't need USDA, uh, you know, everybody wants to get away from the packing reasons yeah yeah and and let's stick a pin in the usda element there because i I really want to spend some time on that but let's uh, that's further downstream in our discussion here but yeah i'm I'm sure people are you know are screaming already at their uh, podcast device what about usda (laughs) what about usda so so we're getting to that people chill out um but I, I really want to talk about this more uh, and, and just just fully understand the the setup and the in the freedom that you have and being able to to roll up to these situations. So we, we talked about the New York gig was kind of unique since that was the front end of your of really getting this project going. So so let's take a gig local right now that that you're going to roll out, you're going to do X amount and then bring back to uh, to Walpole to finish up. So would you would you flesh out an example there for us? Pardon the pun. Okay, so what we would do is um, I would roll up in the truck. Um, I For a lot of slaughters um, that are more straightforward, I just have one little box of equipment, and I have my um, hoist um, for larger animals. I don't have a hoist that's powerful enough yet for cattle, but we're getting there. Um, 
so the farmer would have to have a tractor or something. But um, we'll, what I like to do is talk to the farmer a little bit first about how the day is going to go. Mm-hmm. And I like to meet the animal. And um, I hate to say it, but I like to make friends with the animal a little bit. I sure. want to I wanna, um, understand the mood that the animal is in that morning and um, sort of get a better idea of what what they're look what they're expecting with their day. A lot of my job is um, I, in order for this animal to go peacefully, you have to read the animal as a creature at that morning. And this is where we get into like some uh, 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 a part of it that's maybe a little more macabre because I do professionally betray an animal's trust, okay? <laughs> you know, sure. that is that's the that's the first thing that I do in the morning is I go in and I make friends with an animal in order to get close enough to kill it. And um, that's where like, you know, obviously there's probably not a, ve- a lot of vegans listening to the Pastured Pigs podcast, <laughs> but that's where a lot of people immediately shut down. Right. And, um, you know, I take it as, as the most important part of the day. That's the part of the day that I, I get, I'm, I'm relieved after that because when I see the animal go down with no pain and, um, it was at a peaceful moment in its life and I can, I can have the peace of mind that now throughout the rest of the process, no matter what I do, that animal went peacefully. You can screw up whatever you want to after that. I mean, oh, I cut your skirt steaks in half. I'm sorry. I'll take 20 bucks off the ticket price, yada, whatever. If you screw up that first part of the process, that is just so painful. And, like, uh, you know, when, when I was learning and when I was younger, I did miss a couple of knocks. And it's just the worst thing in the world. So once that part of the process is over, I can relax. And at that point, we get the animal up on the hook. We do the skinning and the eviscerating, and, um, you know, it's at that point I can listen to my history podcast and drink my coffee and then get the animal in the truck. You have a surprisingly long amount of time um, to get an animal into refrigeration, and by long amount of time, I mean like two and a half or three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, I can go a pretty far distance without refrigeration, especially in the um, cooler parts of the year here in New England. Yeah. But uh, it's at that point that you're really racing the clock. Um, you, you, uh, congratulations, you've gotten the animal down safely, and now you have to fight against a lot of different things, especially in the summertime. You're fighting against heat, you're fighting against flies. But once you get the animal into the truck and um, into the cooler, you're at the next stage of where you can sort of take a breather and relax. Um, at that point, I, I get the animal's hang weight, um, I, if I haven't gone over the cut sheet with the, with the client, I'll um, finish up and get the gaps in that. And if it's beef, I'll let it hang for a week. Uh, if it's pork, I can start processing, you know, as soon as it cools down. Um, so that's, that's the outline of the process. And I got a little heavy on the philosophy there at the beginning, but that's the most important part of the day is when you're taking the animal's life. And it all, all centers around that. Everything else around that is just cutting meat. Yeah, and and that's and I'm glad you said that because that is what uh, in in your in, in some of this pre-discussion we had some of the notes that you sent me originally when we were talking about doing this interview. That's actually the part that intrigued me the most. That um, you know, I try to think of the analogy. I think of you know a guy that splits firewood. He looks at a block of wood as something that just needs an axe run through it. 
And uh, to to hear a butcher, to hear somebody say that somebody that puts animals down professionally, to say uh, that they have that much care and concern for the animal, that that's refreshing. Uh, because I know a lot of us that raise pigs on pasture, especially our smaller scale guys, you know, we we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into raising our hogs, and and we don't necessarily name each one of them, but we we could because we 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 are we have some intimate time uh, in, while they're on pasture to raise them to make sure they're fed well, and yeah, you know, we always say on our farm that we want all of our animals to live the best life they possibly could. They only have one bad day, and of course yep. that's the last day. So no, I appreciate that, and and that's I think that's. That's refreshing to hear somebody that's not become callous to the job to say, well, this is just another block of wood. I'm going to go up and you know, split with an axe. So uh, so I, I appreciate that approach. And that's so far removed from what we see with with large-scale processing, large-scale uh, butchery shops and, and uh, processing centers. You know, and one other point, uh, and I know you, probably people are making the connection here, and I think we should speak into, is the fact that I know when I take my hogs to the processor, and, and I have an hour and a half drive to my processor, back roads, windy, all that type of stuff, I roll in, you know, it's a commercial facility, USDA, so there's all kinds of stuff going on, a lot of noises, a lot of different smells, a lot of new areas, and those pigs are stressed out. So when we get them off the trailer, you know, they're they're stressed, and, I, and it, it, that's always a part, that bothers me more than anything, is just just the looks on their faces and the looks that that you know they're the, the way they're reacting when they're being unloaded because that is the most stressful they have ever experienced in, in their life cycle on my farm oh yeah absolutely and they can smell the blood they can they can feel the panic they are very intuitive creatures and um you know they don't get calmed down once they get in the pens that's the whole point of the pens and i used to work at a, a packing house it was really it was a good place you know and they had the barn designed by Temple Grandin and all. But guess what? A concrete floor or a steel floor and, you know, pens that kind of weave in and out so the animal can't see too far ahead, it's not a comfortable situation for an animal. Yeah. And they're not going to calm down before the slaughter process very much. Um, it's You know, I, I love the one bad day thing. I've heard that said before. But you know what? It's my job to make sure that the animal doesn't even realize it's a bad day. Yeah, I like that. And, and I mean, look, if people want to eat meat on a large scale, yeah, you're going to have to use slaughterhouses. But there's no good way to do it. There's only slightly better ways to do it. And I think more people that, like you said, are putting the blood, sweat, and tears into their animals, they're thinking, am I even getting the yield back that I want? Am I even getting the the... Am I even getting back my animals exactly. sometimes? Right. You know, that my pig, I, yeah. I can tell you that, you know, most of the time, look, a lot of the fallacies about butchers and butchery, you're probably getting a lot of your animal back. No yield is not the number one thing that packing house people are thinking about when they're cutting, but you know, you're going to get a good amount of your animal back. But I tell you, like a lot of these places have grinders that are too big to process your 20 pounds of ground pork. And they'll, what they'll do is they'll get the weight off the trim for their custom orders grind a huge batch of all the ground pork and then give people back their weight because there's no way around it there's no way that a big huge i mean these grinders that they use in these places you have to ride a hydraulic lift to get to the top to dump your bin and you don't even dump your bin a robot does it for you because it's too heavy like you can't grind 20 pounds of ground pork through that so you know all the reasons from the animal being panicked to it being potentially unsanitary to the workers not treating animals potentially well you know i i follow a lot of these like vegan activist groups online just because i think it's it's you know 
it's informative to keep an eye on the opposition. Sure. But um, I can't agree. I can't disagree with them half the time. Slaughterhouses, you know, they are what they are. You know, like it's not a good time for yeah. anybody. Yeah. And you know, my job is to make it. If it's got to happen, like you said, make it respectful, make it peaceful, and then after that, I have almost nineteen. Oh, yeah. Geez, it's not almost anymore. I'm in my 19th year of cutting meat. Mm-hmm. And um, if there's any problem with the cut, if there's any problem with the yield, come talk to me about it, the man who cut the entire animal. And that kind of peace of mind is why people are going to more butchers like me. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. I, I love the specialty. I love the niche. There's just there's just so much benefit from that that, that, that just resonates with me. So so getting through our processing story again, so in that example where you've you've taken the um, you've taken the, the carcass back to uh, the cooler there and you've got your hanging weight, obviously you've gone over the cut sheet, so at that point you start breaking the pig down. Uh, if it, obviously if it's a cow, it's going to hang for a while, but you're going to start breaking that pig down, and, and you're going all the way to, to vacuum seal and, and uh, smoke cure, sausage grind. Uh, yeah, what, what all you got going on there? Yeah, uh, that's when, you know... That's when I can really uh, have fun because you're not so you're not so much on the clock. I know in my busy season, I'm not going to be you know uh, taking coffee breaks too often. It's going to be slammed. But right. here in my slow season, I can listen to a podcast while I'm cutting, and you know I I, I lease the cooler um, from a couple who used to make cheese. It's actually in their basement, but it's this enormous walk-in cooler with a prep area and and a three bay sink that used to be all health department inspected when they made cheese and now they're retired so they just lease it out to me so it still gets some some use um so at that point i can really i mean i've had nights where i just you know cut meat till two or three o'clock in the morning just because you know i don't have i don't have any boss telling me to go home and i want to get the job done and Dunkin' Donuts is still open for another hour, so let's roll. You know, I, I, I really I prefer working that way. I, I don't like the nine to five thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I don't ever look at the clock and say, oh, it's time to stop cutting meat. It's like, is the job done or not? So I've got a couple freezers over there. It's going to grow into probably four or five freezers this this fall. And um, you know, I cut, I pack. Um, sometimes I have a friend come help me with the packing and the grinding so that, you know, I don't get bogged down in that, but it gets packed, it gets labeled, it gets put in the freezer. And then I give you a call and say, Hey, it's time. The, the smoking and the curing, I'm, um, kind of putting out the third parties right now because I'm not quite set up for it and I don't have too deep of a background in it. So mm-hmm. I want to get some equipment. I want to do some test runs on smoking, um, some bacon and some hams, and then I'll be doing all that in-house too. But yeah, you know the sausages as well. I I do a lot of the blending of the sausage uh, mixes by hand. I I've been making sausage since I was 16 years old. I linked my first sausage at the butcher shop, and I'm 34 now. Um, so you know that's the part where I really get to have fun. The the time crunch is kind of off because you're working in the refrigeration and you're kind of working at the pace that you want, and um, you know that's that's the real butchery part of it, you know? And, and, um, the, 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 the only drawback is that, you know, you kind of want somebody, um, doing the packing and the sealing and the labeling for you because it, it can bog you down if you're a one person show. So do you have that opportunity? Do you have help that comes in? I know you mentioned uh, your girl that, that can help you out. Do you have other staff that you get from time to time? 
Yeah, Caitlin is uh, fantastic. She was doing poultry before we even met, so she helps me with my poultry job. She's a real boost to those days, and um, you know, she she doesn't do too much of the other butchery these days because she's got her own job, and now we're having a baby, so you know, she's a little busy with that. Um, but I have an apprentice, Riley Lawn, who actually just moved to Portsmouth. He kind of flew the coop for a little bit, but he got a really—he's a graduate of Johnson and Wales. So he's got a background in cooking, but he really wanted to learn butchery. And um, the last retail place that I worked at, he came there as counter staff, and I kind of poached him because he's such a fantastic worker. Um, and, and now he's he's my apprentice. Um, unfortunately, it's not like a 40-hour-a-week gig. It's like when I can have him. Uh, but that kid's been um, just absolutely kicking butt. I mean, he picks stuff up and... You know, on the first day that we were breaking down hogs together, I showed him the first hog, and after that he was breaking them himself, you know. And, oh, wow. and so he's just a real bright kid who really wants anything about food, culinary. He's all about it. So now he's um, he finally got his first real um, chef job, cooking job up in Portsmouth, I think. So um, he, he kind of came to me and was like, hey, man, you know, is it cool if I move away and blah, blah, blah. I was like, is it cool? Dude, get the hell out of here and go start your career. <laughs> um but then also um, uh, my buddy Dan Carr, um, he's probably the fastest red meat cutter I know. Um, he works at the packing house up at the Vermont Packing House in Springfield. That's where I worked. Um, I only worked there for a few months because my business just grew too fast and I had to quit. But uh, Dan's like a totally knockout cutter. He's a fun dude. Um, he's the kind of guy that just like you can talk crap all day back and forth to each other and just cut meat and have a roaring good time. I really, really had a lot of help from him last fall. So yeah, there's people I can call on, you know, and I, I, I give them all shouts out, shout outs by name because they deserve it. They're all really good at what they do and they're, they, they help me whenever they can. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. I don't know. We could, we could go down this rabbit trail quite a bit, but yeah, as a person that's broken down a couple of hogs and realized how, how bad I am at it, that, you know, I am, I am an idiot with a knife. And, and and to see somebody, you, you see some of these videos and you get to, every once in a while you get to actually see somebody who knows what they're doing. And it really is an art. And it seems to be a lost art uh, the further we go. But but I really appreciate uh, somebody that can take the time and fully understand uh, and get the, the best yield, but really know what they're doing. And not only do it well, but do it efficiently and do it quickly. Yeah, that, you know, a, a piece of this moving forward is, I do want a huge educational piece of this, not just doing butchery classes for the public. That's all well and good. But, you know, my eventual goal is to have a meat locker here in Cheshire County and to have a staff of cutters working with me that I'm bringing up and people who are going to be in this industry forever. Because, as you said, you know, people people probably been saying meat cutting is a dying trade since like the 70s. And honestly, they're probably right. Um, there is no certification in America anymore. There's no true journeyman situation. Really? People ask me, uh, you know, how can you say that you're a master butcher? And I tell them, because you can't tell me I'm not. Because 0.05% <laughs> of the population can tell me that I'm not. And that's just it, man. And and so what we're looking for is people who are, like, going to lock in. You know, a kid like Riley, who, yeah, he's, he's going to do the culinary thing probably, but he's got this passion. He just wants to know everything about how the food gets to the table and his butchery skills are great and um 
you know, there's two different kinds of meat cutters. There's guys who get paid and pick up their check, and then they'll go, like, work at their buddy's construction company as soon as they can make a little more money. And then there's guys like me who I've tried to leave several times. I'm not going anywhere. This profession's not letting me leave, man. Yeah. And now it's my thing. I love it. I've, I've really, you know, I, I, I say without any hyperbole that this is, this is one of the reasons why I was put here to do this. And, and I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Excellent. So, so let's talk about where you are right now with that size. Again, being able to have some of this uh, help when you need them. So how big uh, would you say that there's a max if, if a farm calls you and says, all right, Daniel, I need X amount of pigs processed in, in one, one go. What is that number X that you would say would be your max? I mean, all by my lonesome, I can do five pigs in a day. Okay. And it might be a pretty long day, but I can do it. Um, if I had my trailer with me I, and another person with me, I could probably get up to eight or nine. Um, um, but it's luckily, I haven't had to think about that too much. Um, clients that have large orders, like I have one gentleman who's going to have something like 20 pigs, five sheep and 50 turkeys in October he's going to eat up almost my whole October um, but it's the kind of thing where I'm going to be going back once a weekend to be knocking out five hogs knocking out six hogs knocking out four hogs and then you know what I mean yeah do so, a batch process yeah yeah that's kind of what I'm doing for larger jobs um, but I'd say that probably five hogs in a day would be my max I could probably put two or three cattle a day into my truck um if my truck could physically hold that much, but it can't because it's Tacoma. Um, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but um, to do, to do everything down to sausage and 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 all, I think our record is and let's see, I think four hogs in a day from field to sausage. Me and another cutter is kind of my all time high score so far. Wow, that's moving. But that's 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 sausage linked in vacuum seal. You know, in a day. And that, you know, that, that's, that's just phenomenal. You, know, you think about, I think it's some small process and I, and I'm usually around the 15 to 20 hogs at a time. Uh, but I, th- I think of some of the smaller producers I know that, man, what a, what an awesome situation would be to say, okay, you're going to roll up, you're going to dispatch my pigs this morning. And before you, before you're done this evening, you're going to give me finished product. Oh yeah. I mean, one, one, uh, one job last year, we actually stayed with the family that we were doing the hogs for because we did two hogs on site um, for one family, and there were this other family was just a few miles over in the next town. So um, they let us stay at their place. We slaughtered the hogs that night, um, same day as we did the other two hogs, and then the next day we processed them literally in their kitchen. So they're sitting there frying up the sausage as I'm mixing it to make sure you know. Oh, you know, you should put a little more paprika in there or whatever. You know, and yeah. that's just that's. You know, once I saw that and I realized that that could be my job, I, I said, I have to do this. This is the coolest job that I could ever think to have in my life. Yeah, I love I love that story because that's what resonates with me. Um, we have a, a local nonprofit that has an addiction recovery center and a homeless shelter, and we, we've helped them get an ag program going. And, and so uh, the first set of hogs that we raised, we raised, helped them raise six. We we broke one down just to try it out. So here's here's guys that are that are you know, overcoming addiction. Uh, they, they've been in the program for six to eight months. Uh, you're really starting to get their lives back together and, and and experience something that 
yeah, most of these guys haven't even been off concrete, and uh, here they are experiencing this farm endeavor as we're br- breaking this hog down. And again, like I said, I'm an idiot with a knife, so we're, you know, you'd probably roll your eyes if you saw what we did. But uh, <laughs> but, but here we're creating, yeah, and we, we just broke the whole thing down for sausage because with a homeless shelter, you just want to be cranking out the sausage. And and literally doing that, you know, putting a pinch of mix in, turning around, throwing it right down on the skillet, frying it up yeah. and be like, oh, wow, that's great. Okay, man, that is so fresh. That's good. Oh, let's try a little bit of this. Let's try a little bit of that. And then just trying all these different blends in this commercial kitchen downtown in our capital city. It's just, there's just something, there's just something just so surreal about it, but just, just seems so, so interesting to me and just so, uh, just enthralls me to, to be a part of that. Yeah. I mean, every, as I say, every, every job that I do in the field turns into a day, you know, uh, a day that you spend with these people who raise these animals and, you know, sometimes they'll make you lunch or bring you coffee or, you know, it, it's it's just completely different than the situation that I used to have working in retail where, you know, in Boston I could have, I could wait on 250, 300 people a day during the holidays, many more. Yeah. And there's just not even time to take a breath, let alone get to know people. And that's not to say that I, I didn't make some long lasting friendships over the counter when I was in retail. I did. I met some great people who I still keep in contact these to this day who were just at one point my customer but there's no way that you can have um, the kind of relationship that you have with each individual client Um, I'm I'm looking at a situation right now where between 150 and 175 clients is absolutely the most that I can handle probably in a year with help at the current size that I'm at and there's there's just there's full accountability, there's uh, a relationship that builds, there's a rapport that builds, and there's a trust that builds, and there's just no way that you can get that buying meat at a grocery store or taking your animal to the slaughterhouse. Yeah. Yeah. So so with that scale, and of course, answer this question to the depth that you want to answer, feel comfortable answering. So to that scale where you have that many customers say, this is the max I can do in, in my existing condition, is that... Um, is that a comfortable wage? Is that is that a, a self-supporting business at that point for you? Is it well? I gotta have. I got some slow times. I gotta do some some other things to make up for that. Or is this is this something that'll just keep you rolling? No, that's the number that is is that's the sweet spot for me where it's uh, paying the bills, paying the taxes, taking care of the family, taking care of the business. You know. I'm not going to be driving a Mercedes, but to be perfectly honest with you, I don't really want to drive a Mercedes. Yeah. So I think that that's the level where I'm going to be most comfortable. Pushing beyond that is going to be possible and probably inevitable. But um, it's at that point that, I mean, it's at that point where I'm going to be taking more of a, a CEO role and yeah. less of a cutter's role because I won't physically be able to cut that much meat. But at the same time, you know, you, I don't want to get too big. I, I I have I have toyed with the idea of getting a second truck going in the future, um, you know, franchising or something crazy like that. But I think the real goal for me is to get the meat locker. Um, if I could get a meat locker going in Keene, that way I could comfortably grow beyond that mm-hmm. and maybe up to 300 or 400 clients. But that would require a lot of... Um, centralization and streamlining that I just don't have right now. Again, going back to the DeWalt multi-tool, I'd really like a bandsaw. I don't have one. I'm probably going to be purchasing one before the fall. But, you know, with the equipment that I have, I can only physically... I could probably double the amount of processing that I could do if I had the proper equipment. But growing into the role, 
some of this equipment is so expensive that you have to really be patient for it to come into your life, you know? Yeah, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> Shame you're not closer. There's a perfectly good meat bandsaw in that nonprofit's warehouse I was telling you about. We had somebody you know, two years ago donate a bunch of processing equipment to it, and it's still in the warehouse. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe... Maybe uh, maybe if the gas money isn't too expensive, I'll come down. Well, there you go. Yeah, you talked about uh, it not growing too much, but maybe if you upgrade that Toyota and get you a bigger truck, you can, <laughs> you can do something. <laughs> well, I tell you, um, yeah, we can we can riff on that Toyota a little more before we uh, before we move forward. I just I, I really put the suspension of that poor girl through the ringer, oh, and yeah. uh, I just had to take it in for some repairs. And I was thinking to myself, like. You know, you can't really afford fifteen hundred bucks a year in repairs because you're overloading this thing with cows. So, but that's the thing is that you know it's got to grow, and yeah, that big box truck is coming with the crane and everything, but it's not here now. So we're just being patient. Well, and that's, I mean, my goodness, from, you know, from a perspective of my day job, uh, you know, marketing business consultant, yeah, I, I really, it's refreshing when I hear people say that instead of saying, oh, I've got great credit. I'm going to go out and I'm going to put this on credit. I'm going to put that on credit. And then they realize, man, I got to do X amount a month to even even cover the bills and it, you get yeah. upside down so quick in that situation. That's what causes businesses to go under. They just they just leverage all their liquidity up front and, and they're screwed. Oh, yeah. And, you know, not that I couldn't use, hey, any angel investors out there, not that I couldn't use a, <laughs> a small business loan or something. I'm Next year, one of my um, financials are... Uh, when I have a, a larger history of financials, I might go for one. But, you know, you're right. It, you know, a lot of people put a lot of faith in their ideas. And I got to tell you, that is a that is a Disney proposition. You really have to know what you're doing. And like you said, you, you know, if you can't make that certain, you know, amount per month to pay those loans off, your whole dream just went up in smoke because you got too big for your britches. Yeah. And as I said, you know, there have been times where, I didn't think I was going to be able to go do a job because of my lack of equipment. And then you get there on the day and you're like, wait a second, all I needed was this saw and this knife. I know how to do everything else. And in that way, my biggest, you know, the biggest equity that my company has is my experience. So, you know, um, for right now, I mean, that works. I get by on it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that pops into my head, like I said, I know I'm all over the place here with questions, but one thing that pops into my head is this relationship you have with your customers as you're coming on their farm, as you're integrating uh, with their process, you're obviously interacting with their animal. Do you find, uh, is there, this is kind of a two, two-legged question here about education, is there uh, a hurdle you have to overcome to educate the person as to what you're going to do, how you're going to do it? I mean, is, is, is a farmer standing there with a shotgun saying, I'm ready to shoot this hog, are you going to do that? Yeah, do, do, you have to, do you run into that, or do you have people over your shoulder saying, teach me everything you know, Daniel, I want to watch it. I want to know all of this. It's a, it's a good combination of both, especially with the pig people, because pigs, as you know, are kind of one of the animals that people get into at the beginning um, for a lot of different reasons. But pig people tend to be newbies at this kind of thing, mm-hmm. unless they're like the client that I talked about that has 25 hogs or whatever, or they're breeders or whatever doing a meat share. Um, and there's a lot of that educational aspect. So the cool thing is that most of them are really interested and they want to watch the whole process. Um, you know, there's a couple of people who really want me to come to their farms and do the whole thing right in front of them, which, as I said, is not so much an option these days. But, um, you know, there's also the other aspect of it where I work with people who, in, 
terms of farming have way more experience than I have. I've raised a couple of hogs and some goats and chickens and but I mean I don't I'm learning all kinds of stuff and I have a friend who's a vet who, you know, I actually learned it's the farm that I talked about where I learned how to do the slaughtering. She asked me, you know, all the time, Oh, what what breed of whatever did you slaughter this weekend? I'm like, Oof forgot to ask that part yeah. you know what i mean like it's just you know there's there's parts where i'm a real newbie still and it comes to that the, the agricultural side of it where i'm still learning you know the difference between all the breeds and everything and and uh you know but when it comes to making sausage i can i i can literally do it in my sleep i do a lot of the time when i'm when i have a lot of jobs lined up sometimes i just dream that i'm cutting meat so but um you know I, well, that, that's one of the coolest parts is that we're all learning this together and you know some of my clients want to just have me shoot the hog and then they go watch the football game and some of them legitimately bust out a skinning knife and they're like show me how to skin this thing yeah and it's awesome well you know i i think and again obviously uh, as you as you look at your business model and what works uh, you know what works and what doesn't but i would think there would be a value-added opportunity in your business to to do some educational elements. I know, man, I, if you were closer to me, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd definitely have you out and I'd be hanging over your shoulder. Cause I, I'd want to know how to break one down. I'd want to learn even just, you know, a, a, a fraction of the percentage of what you know, when it comes to that, cause that fascinates me. And I think you'd have the opportunity to say, Hey man, I'm, I'm going to do a butchery class. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And uh, we're going to go to this farm and do that. I think can hewn farm is, is known for doing that. I see them on YouTube a lot. A lot of uh, other, other YouTubers uh, talk about those guys and they travel around and they teach people kind of how to do traditional uh, hog butchery. So I think yep. that would be an opportunity there as well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I'm in talks with a couple of different farms right now for this fall having uh, workshops like that. Um, um, I'm happy to do that. I, one one of the things that um, I have to warn people about, though, is you know taking a butchery class is going to give you the fundamental, basic knowledge of the process and a couple of little details involving the process. But there are things that are elemental to a butcher, like knife handling, yeah. like... Um, uh, you know, uh, keeping your grind ratios good while you're, you know, knowing what's trim and what's not trim, knowing what's a tendon and what's ed- what's edible, what's not edible. And um, we're well, keeping a knife what, sharp. Yeah, <laughs> keeping a knife sharp. I mean, these are things that take people years to learn. And um, you know, I have to be real clear with some people that I can show you as much as you, uh, you want, or you could watch a YouTube video and go right along with it with the knife. But there are aspects of skill to butchery that you're not going to be able to develop unless you have a knife in your hand for eight to 10 hours a day, five to six days a week. And um, so I I try to get people not too excited about the butchery classes. And I try to be very clear about what it is about, which is about the basic intro to this kind of stuff and understanding the process from beginning to end and maybe, you know, cutting a couple of pork chops along the way. But I try to be real careful about letting people know, like, you're not going to walk out of, out of uh, even, you know, a, a, a weekend session, a butcher, you know, you're going to walk out with a pretty good idea of the, of the process and, and that kind of thing. But it takes a long time to really learn some of the more nuanced things about the process and that's where the, you know, that's why we're really hard on apprentices because we don't want people who aren't going to hang around for very long. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. 
Well, um, let's let's address the 900-pound gorilla in the room that I'm sure people are wondering, and, and we promised we'd talk about it. What do you do when it comes time for the U.S. duh? Yeah, how do you deal with those? <laughs> what? How do you do this legally? What What are all the hoops that you have to jump through? Yeah, well, you, I work under the custom exempt laws, which are actually up here, you know, very forgiving. Um, I can process up to a thousand chickens for a person per year, and they can sell them um, at farmers markets and stuff. Uh, as for the four-legged creatures, um, none of that stuff can be for resale except unless you're doing a meat share, which is very specific and rigidly designed direct-to-sale, uh, direct-to-customer sale. Um, so the person basically has to buy the whole animal or half the animal while it's still on the hoof, and then it trips and falls over a knife on the way to their home. Right. And uh, you know, But you know, there's plenty of business out there for cutters like me, for farmers who just need it for their own personal consumption. I get call animals a lot. You know, people don't want to go through the, uh, through the difficulty of taking a call animal to the slaughterhouse. You know, a lot of my off season work comes from people who can't even get the animals onto the trailer. Um, so like the custom exempt laws exist for animals to be processed in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, what's unfortunate about mobile butchery in new England is that the USDA has a real monopoly here. There are USDA mobile butchers in other parts of the country, but they operate in places where the farms are much larger, uh, much more well-equipped, and, I mean, let's face it, out west where a lot of these cattle farms are, it's not exactly like it's very hilly, not compared to here in New Hampshire. My, my girl who's from Kansas is, like, shaking her head. But um, <laughs> you know, some of these rural, rural farms up here in New England, I mean, the USDA is very strict about how it has to be processed. It has to be, you have to have a flat, concrete place to park the trailer, which that, number one, just rules out a lot of these places up here in New England yeah. where there isn't a flat spot anywhere on the farm. And, you know, forget about having a concrete slab specifically just for that. Exactly. Then there's, then there's all these other regulations. You have to provide an office and a bathroom for the USDA inspector. I mean, the actual rig that you need for a USDA mobile thing is, is very expensive. And then to meet all the requirements up here in New Hampshire, you're, you're limited to very few farms that could actually even meet the requirements. And that's one of the things that, in the long term, honestly, I want to kind of try to break through because there's no reason that these rural farmers shouldn't have access to USDA mobile slaughter. The only reason is the big ag has very powerful lobbyists who want the rules written in very specific ways to squeeze out farmers and slaughtermen like me. They want everything. It's that get bigger, get out thing that started in the 70s. Yeah. Everything has to be industrialized. Everything has to be big scale. Everything has to be regulated down to the letter and you know honestly i've been doing mobile slaughter for a few years now you can safely put an animal in the cooler with very little and i just think that the it's such a bully tactic that the usda uses to basically keep honestly i think it's just a plan to make it hard for small farmers they want everything big they want everything industrialized they want everything like a big factory and that's you know that's the that's what they think the future of animal agriculture right. is, but I know being in the trenches that it's not. Well, also an element of control, and obviously I'm not I'm not going to light my torch and get my pitchfork out here, but I, I definitely feel what you're saying there. But it, definitely an element of control. Uh, regulation gives control. Regulation helps eliminate uh, the fringe. 
uh, helps eliminate the unknown from their perspective. So, yeah, so yeah I, I think there's definitely ulterior motives in this. And, of course, it's all done under the guise of public safety when we've proven over and over again that uh, public safety and, and, and public health when it comes to handling our food usually is best going back to more traditional ways than, than doing this big industrial ag process. Right, and it's a self-fulfilling thing because in order to have a large-scale industrial uh, animal agriculture process, things get really dirty and things get really greedy. And if people aren't watched like hawks throughout the entire process, I mean, when I, you know, they'll try to get away with every, with whatever they can. When I worked at this small uh, facility in um, in in uh, Springfield, Vermont, Vermont Packing House, I mean, it was a very tiny packing house, and they had like four USDA inspectors watching every single part of the process like hawks. And it's like, well, why do they need to be doing that? Perhaps we're moving the process along too quickly. Perhaps we're pushing the margins, the profit margins, a little too much so that farmers would cut corners or that slaughter operations would cut corners and you wouldn't get a clean, healthy product. It's the force of that industrialization that requires USDA inspectors in the first place. Again, going back to accountability, I work with my client. I cut the meat for them. I deliver it back to them. I am held accountable for that meat, okay? If somebody takes it to the slaughterhouse, it passes through dozens and dozens of hands before it gets into the box. And throughout that process, if it's not watched, it could be contaminated. So it's like this self-fulfilling thing where the larger the system gets, the more regulation it requires, and so on and so forth. And the bureaucrats just like cackle to themselves, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, man, wow. Um, So as far as as far as the exemption goes, do you still have any type of inspection? Do you have to? Do you have to be certified? Did you have to have somebody come out before they gave you this business license or anything to to get into this process? No, um, I read the custom exempt laws, and it doesn't. It, you know, I didn't see anything like that. If you know of that kind of thing, and I'm operating unawares, like let me know. But I don't think so. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, if the government comes and rolls up and asks what I'm doing, I get to tell them to pound sand because it's none of their business. <laughs> it's a transaction between me and a farmer. I am cutting their meat for them, and it's going back in their cooler. Yeah. There are a lot of different rules that you have to follow. But as I said here in Vermont, New Hampshire, they're not they're not that strict. Um, but uh, no, I, as far as I know, um, the government cannot um, intrude in what I'm doing, unless it gets to the point that they find out that one of my clients is selling the meat retail. Right. I mean, at that point, though, it's it's between the government and my client. I make it very clear to all my clients that it's not for resale, and yeah. it's you know, it's um, it, it's uh, a cornerstone of of the whole process. It's like, look, this is not to go into your butcher shop or whatever. If you're doing meat shares, the paperwork has to be razor sharp because I'm not responsible for you selling this meat. So in that way, the meat never really, it never belongs to me and um, it doesn't become my property. I don't sell it for retail. They don't sell it for retail. So there's, there's no jurisdiction for the government there. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I know you mentioned that you also do poultry and, uh, you here in our state of West Virginia, we have the 1,000 bird exemption, and it, it's kind of interesting the 
the regulations are literally a, a pick list of 10 things. And those 10 things are pretty nebulous. It's, it's pretty basic. You just need a clean environment. And you know, I've, I've heard Joel Salatin rail about this for years when it comes to, to poultry processing. Uh, it really comes down to, in our state at least, they, they really don't have anyone to enforce it. They don't have any manpower uh, to do any type of inspection. So it really goes off to the after the complaint system. If somebody complains about it, then they got to send somebody out to look at it. But they right. really don't even have any specific guidelines. It, it, there's a lot of variables in there. There's a lot of uh, perception. Well, this is how I perceive this to be. So it really makes it interesting. And, and so I, I wondered on the flip side of that, are there are there any organizations? Obviously, I, I figure you have to have some sort of liability rider for this. But are there any organizations, any any legal defense that uh, that mobile butchers uh, get to take advantage of? I seriously doubt that. Um, I, I, I would think that it's such a niche thing that, you know, I mean, I, I'm one of a handful of mobile butchers in all of New England. Yeah, wow. And a lot of the other guys don't really advertise what they do very much because I think they kind of do it under the table. Sure. So, um, I mean, I don't even think that people have thought of that yet. Yeah, and may not. That's kind of one of the things, that's one of the reasons why I want to be out in the open about it and, and make it a big thing so that maybe these guys can come out of the shadows a little more. I mean, you know, uh, I think that there's space for a lot of this in New England and all over the country. And, you know, um, the more people do it and shine a light on it and say, look, what are the regulations? I'll follow them. I think the less scared uh, people will be about getting pinched. I think some of these dudes actually think it's illegal. Yeah, which is funny. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the things. And again, like you say, that's that's almost deliberate. Is let's let's keep this nebulous. Let's keep it vague. That way, the typical person thinks they've got everything to lose if they step out of line in any way. And right. Yeah, and, yeah. Guy's not going to stick his head out of a foxhole if he thinks he's going to get it blown off every time. So. Right. And you said you're not going to light your pitchfork, but you know, uh, uh, light your torch and hold your pitchfork. But I'll hold them for you because <laughs> I really don't mind being a thorn in the government side. I actually can't <laughs> wait until I get to a point where I can start hassling USDA lawyers because honestly, you know, w- without using too many $13 words, I think it's a bunch of crap. I think that they um, have had a organized program since the, since the early 70s to crush the American farmer. And whatever I can do to fight back against that and to just, uh, you know, if I can't blow up their tank, maybe I can rip the, uh, the tread off it. You know what I mean? Right. Anything I can do to just move the small farmer forward back towards where we, we used to be in America, where, you know, when America started, the small farmer was the cornerstone of this country. Thomas Jefferson wrote extensively about it and about how this country would fall apart without small farmers. And he wasn't wrong. Okay. Um, I think that, a large part of people, individual Americans' deracination from their own selves, this depression wave that we're dealing with, this this anxiety that the entire country has, part of it is how disassociated we are with the earth, where our food comes from, um, how, how much work it takes to produce the things that we consume. And I just think that the more people know that there are services like mine or other different small farm services available, the more confidence that they're going to have in getting back into small farming. Because one of the reasons people don't do it is because they're scared. 
And I think that the more support they see along the way, the more people will go, you know what, I can raise my own pork. I don't need to buy that garbage pork from a grocery store that's super lean and super pale and doesn't taste like anything. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it, and it and, uh, and again, it just it still blows my mind. As, as long as I've been in this, still blows my mind the disconnect that people have from their food and from the understanding, or just the the desire to be blinded by it. Uh, I mean, I even in my own family have a sister in law who she refuses to eat any of our pork products because she knows it's something that I raised and it was an animal and it you know it had a face, it had a whole, but that she doesn't mind you know, rolling up to Burger King or or going to the supermarket and buying meat. She's she's not a vegan. She'll eat it all day long. She just doesn't know what doesn't want doesn't want to know where it came from, which again just seems so absurd to me. Yeah, and I you know I've dealt with that a lot as a butcher. Um, a couple of my favorite stories back when I was this is when I was a teenager at Paul's Choice, which was the butcher shop that I worked at when I was a kid. I remember one of the girls who worked the cash register walked through the cutting room and we were all cutting up a bunch of chickens. I was just pulling chickens out of a box and we were just cutting them up with cleavers on the table and she goes. Um, and bless her heart, she was like a 15-year-old girl. She was like, oh, that's so gross. And we were like, whoa, you don't like chicken? And she said, the chicken that I eat doesn't come out of a box. <laughs> and we were, we were like, uh, uh, we're no not going to comment on that. Just go go up to the register. But then even more recently, I, um, you know, I, I post everything on my social media. I'm extremely transparent in my process. And, and uh, I posted a picture of my apprentice skinning a beef, skinning a cow, um, on site and a lady who followed me who I, I didn't know who this person was I, I have a lot of strangers following me now because of the butcher Pete thing she said um, you know I like meat just as much as the next person but this is a little much I don't think that people need to see this and my response to her was you know this is what a hamburger looks like before it grows up right yeah and, and you know it's my I mean if you want to get down to the nitty gritty if I had a couple shots of whiskey I'd probably tell you that if you eat if you make the choice to eat meat, you should have to kill one of the things that you eat at least once in your life. You should have to see that animal make that sacrifice. Now I know that's a little much for most people, oh, so I'll that, go a little lighter on the rhetoric yeah. and just say that if you're going to choose to eat meat, you should be at least familiar with the process yeah. and not skeeved out at the sight of an animal being skinned. That animal gave the greatest sacrifice that it could give, and it had no choice in the matter. So the most respect that you can show for it is to not be skeeved out about it. And I, I, I almost just said right then, skeeved out like a little kid. But you know what? Some of the most captive audiences that I've ever had while cutting meat on site have been the little kids of the farmers that are raising the animals. Right. And so if even little kids can be curious and respectful of the process, so can you, Mr. I eat. 50 hamburgers a year or whatever you know what i mean oh no you're you're, you're definitely on my soapbox man and, and i know we can we could go on for hours about this because I, I definitely agree with you raising hogs raising chickens especially you know chickens for crying out loud where you've where everything eats chicken so you got all this predation issues you've got the things that go along with that the work that goes into it and and this is what i've taught my boys my boys are teenagers now and you know they've they've been a part of this they've had a hand in it so they understand but at the beginning it's like I want to see every bite of that plate cleaned off. If anything goes in the garbage, anything that I work my butt off to raise, I'm going to punch oh, somebody yeah. in the nose. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah. You end up such a deeper respect for your food. And I've had that same experience going, you know what? I, I don't think I can finish these last two bites, but you know what? 
that pig that I raised gave its life, and I could show it the respect of finishing those last two bites, taking those nutrients into my body, you know, and 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 nourishing myself from that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, my my wife's an incredible cook and has been for. 24 years that's why we do a podcast so nobody sees my girth but um so even even as long as she's been cooking when we started raising our own stuff about 10 years ago she she has a whole new appreciation in the preparation because she's out there helping me process our broilers and you know she's she's got small hands so she's a really good eviscerator she knows how to get to the lungs and uh, so she's in there doing that and, and she's like wow you know when i Back in the day when I used to go to the grocery store and buy a 10-pack of breast meat and be like, oh, okay, we'll buy this. Oh, I can't believe this is six bucks. I'm I'm paying that for X amount of pounds of of whatever chicken came from anywhere. And and now sees, okay, when we raise it ourselves and, you know, one chicken only has two breasts. So if you're going to make a a, a big chicken chicken breast dinner for a bunch of people, then you're dealing with a lot of of chicken here. And it, it just gives a newfound respect for the amount of work that's put into it. Uh, from start to finish, from raising it even all the way up to the cooking and preparing of it. Oh yeah, and uh, through my career, I've I've developed a couple of pretty morbid jokes that I won't say on the air about <laughs> the waste that comes from choosing to just eat a boneless, skinless chicken breast or or just that half pound sliver of salmon from the thick end, not from the tail end, please. Um, you know, I had a lot of pet peeves in my retail years, yeah. and um, what you just brought up inadvertently. Uh, one of the biggest things about this that blows my mind and that I'll get on another soapbox about that I almost forgot about. The industrialization of this process has driven the cost of meat to an unsustainably low number. Right. And I follow a lot of butcher groups on Facebook just as much as I follow the vegan activists. And, um, they, you know, guys from, you know, Piggly Wigglies or whatever, you know, your typical, uh, you know, Albertsons, whatever, they'll post these doorbuster sales that they have for like 89 cent a pound boneless pork chops. And I'm like, yo, uh, you can hear my, my New Jersey come out a little bit just then. <laughs> yo, how do you even get a pig to that size for that price? And the answer is you physically can't unless you are mistreating the pig as part of the process you know what i mean or you're treating the farmer as a slave because i mean look at the situation with some of these chicken farmers for purdue they get levied with these huge loans they end up not being able to pay them back unless they produce 18 million chickens by this point and they essentially become slaves to a system and so you know the system that makes slaves out of farmers and cheap commodity out of meat i I, i'm sorry but that's not sustainable and the american public has to shake its uh, head a little bit and, and, and shake out of that dream that you can have 89 cent a pound boneless, uh, boneless pork chops or boneless skinless chicken breasts forever. It just is not going to work. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think each of us, each of us producers, whether it's you know, beef, chicken, pork, whatever, each of our of us producers have to be ready to defend, but not only defend, but advocate what we do, I, I, can, I can remember having a conversation probably two years ago, maybe three years ago, as I was just starting to sell retail cuts of my pork, a guy arguing with me, I can't believe you're selling your bacon for $8.50 a pound when I can go down to Walmart and I can get it on sale for $3 a pound or whatever. And you know, you, you can only talk so much to a guy and you say, buddy, I'm just not your, you're not my customer type. If you don't see the difference... And not just in the quality of my pork and how good it tastes and, yeah, I, I treated it humanely, all that stuff. But just the fact that you discount 
where your food source comes from that you don't even give a crap as long as it's a, a certain price and you're going to say that's going to, price is always going to drive why I buy food then yeah I, yeah I, I can't I can't get through to you in one setting it, it's going to take months of conversation to convince you of, of why an eight dollar and fifty pound uh, pack of bacon actually makes sense and you probably won't get through them anyway I mean one of the things I always say that is a little harsh but it's true is that the only thing that's cheaper than the American public is slave labor and uh, you know the American public has been trained that cheaper is better, and um, anything of quality. I mean, quality doesn't really factor into the equation when you're talking to most Americans, um, and that goes to every part of their every aspect of their life, from right. the clothing we choose to wear to the food we choose to eat to the entertainment we choose to consume. It, 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 you know, whatever is there and cheap and accessible, you know, people tend not to think about it much and. You know, I made a I made a, a nice healthy career at Whole Foods, convincing that guy that you were just talking about that the bacon was worth eight forty nine a pound. But just like you said, there are gonna be people who sneer and go, I'm going down to Walmart to get whatever they have down there and you know, they're lost causes. But I think that most people I think there is a resurgence in the desire to know where your food comes from and the desire to know that it came from a good place, especially meat, because you know, a pig gives a different sacrifice than a carrot, and it, it should be important to people that the animal had quality of life and that it died well and was processed at the best quality. Now, Temple Grandin tricked everybody because nobody would listen to her when she said, make it better for the animals. Then when she proved to the meat industry that it was better for the bottom line right. to be good to the animals, then everybody started getting in line. Yeah. So, you know... We do live in a country where money talks, and um, that is another part of uh, the educational piece that I do is to try to get people to understand you can't physically raise good meat for that price. Exactly. Yeah, Some, something has to give somewhere. You're, you're, you're cutting corners somewhere, and that's going to show up throughout the process. You just You just have to know the process and be more educated on your food source. Well, man, obviously we could we could go on for forever, and and we're already past the one hour mark. But I I appreciate it. I really enjoyed this conversation, and and uh, would would you'd love to have you back on? We'll we'll get into some of this more because I think there's stuff that we've just begun to scratch the surface on, and and I think we could get into it. Maybe even have our listeners submit some questions. I know <laughs> when you talked about the sausage going into the platform, and are you really getting your own sausage back at the big producers? There's some people you know, clutch their chest and oh, say it isn't so. <laughs> So well, yeah, we could probably I mean, <laughs> have you come back and tell uh, uh, processing horror stories for an hour. So. <laughs> oh yeah, and you know what? I can tell you the horror stories, and I can tell you the good stories too, man. Yeah. There's a lot of. Uh, all I can say is, you know, trust your butcher as much as you can, um, and you know, normally nine times out of ten, if you get less yield back than you thought, especially if it's a guy like me, he, he you know. There's a lot of different factors to that, but, you know, you do have to kind of hold the processing houses' feet to the fire because those places do a lot of business. They process a lot ahead, and if you're bringing in two or three animals at a time, you you can get lost in the shuffle, you know, even in the best laid plans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember the first one of the first butchers I, I took mine to. He was a USDA guy, and, and of course, here in West Virginia, it's all smaller scale, but um, he was one of the few USDA guys we had, and... And he he messed up my hams. He he had an issue where he ruined I think eighteen hams, and uh, so he said, "Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to order you new hams, 
I'm going to bring him in here and we'll take care of it and we'll we'll get those swapped out in no time. I said, man, that ain't going to work. Well, why not? I don't understand. It's like, those aren't my pigs. I didn't raise them. I don't. Right. You know, the reason why I charge what I charge is because people are getting the pork that I raised. And, and yeah, he was, he was a good guy. I mean, he, he made it right. He actually, I'll never forget. He turned around, opened his wallet and he said, well, what would you sell those 18 hams for? And I told him, and he said, all right, here we go. And he literally rolled out. I mean, that was, it was almost a grand. And uh, he, he rolled that out and said, I'm sorry, we'll take care of it. So, so yeah, it, it, you know, their guys trying to make it a living as well. Uh, I, I think, as you said, having having that trust established, getting a good relationship, making sure they understand that you you're not just raising a commodity, you're not just raising something that you don't care if it gets swapped out. That this has a personal attachment to it, and if they respect that and and do their best, you know, we all make mistakes, but uh, you know, they they have to rectify it uh, when it's when it's their problem. Absolutely, and again, you know, I know we're we're trying to cut it off here, but. I've made mistakes with clients before too, and and uh, you know it's so much different when you can call me and and hold me personally accountable than when you have to talk to the owner of a packing house who you're a two head line item and we we're processing fifty thousand head this year. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah, a different exactly. level of accountability. Right. Right. Definitely. All right. Well, this time we're really going to cut it off. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Dan, I appreciate it. If, if people want to know more about your operation, uh, where can they find you uh, on the World Wide Web right now? All right. Well, you can go to butcherpeats.com, but uh, at the moment, that's just going to take you right to our Facebook. Or if you Google Butcher Pete's Mobile Meat LLC, all of our different um, social media and pages will come up and a little press about us, too. Uh, we won a, uh, an award last year. Um, some articles about that will come up. So just if you throw Butcher Pete's mobile meat out into the Internet, I'll pop up somewhere and you can learn more about what I do. And uh, I was on another podcast a couple of weeks ago called the Off Farm Income Podcast. And, you know, just type that into the Internet and I'll come up. And, you know, if you're close by and you have a couple of hogs, give me a shout. I'm booking up for the fall. Awesome. Excellent. So, yeah, so any of our listeners that are in the New England area there, again, uh, looking at a map here so I can fully understand New England. Um, so, yeah, the New New Hampshire, Vermont area, southern Maine, uh, uh, I assume Massachusetts, because you're not that far from Massachusetts, are you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, do you go as far down as Connecticut, into Rhode Island? or? Uh, I, I could. Um, Probably not. thing with Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, I know we're not trying to start another conversation here, but the gun <laughs> laws there are real iffy, yeah. so... Wow. Um, you know, I, it's, it's a little difficult to do the slaughter without a gun, but, um, oh, sweet uh, Lord. yeah, but, uh, anyway, you know, if you're in new England, if you're within, you know, a hundred miles or, or even 150, 200 miles of Keene, give me a call. If we can work it out, we can work it out. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Daniel, I appreciate your time, man. I enjoyed this conversation. Look forward to talking to you again. Yeah. Troy was a blast, man. Um, I'll, uh, I can't wait to hear it. All right. We'll take care. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, all right. Well, I, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I obviously really wanted to keep rolling on that, but I didn't want to make it a super long podcast. We may have to get Dan back on uh, from time to time and, and get some additional updates and just talk about uh, things from his perspective when it comes to processing. Well, if you want to know more about Dan, you check out his Facebook page. Uh, he mentioned that already, but uh, just search Butcher Pete's um, Butcher Pete anywhere on Facebook and he should pop up again he's in the New Hampshire area there so you can you can find him there uh, give him a like that way you can follow him there and, and see what he's got going on 
If you're in the New England area or you have an operation in that area, uh, consider giving Dan a call. Uh, utilize his services there. Obviously, he's uh, he's a growing business. He uh, would love to have additional business, I'm sure. Uh, so give him a try if you're in that neck of the woods, if it makes sense. Uh, while we're asking for services, please take the time to rate and review our podcast, if you would. Uh, again, it really helps people find us. And I just want more people to, to hear these great stories that you all are sharing with me. Uh, so, uh, so help us be found uh, in the interwebs by, uh, by uh, rating us and reviewing us. Uh, I believe we have three ratings. And fortunately, those three ratings are, are five-star. I appreciate that. But we only have three. And uh, I don't think we have any reviews yet. So those three three ratings could be my mom, my dad, and my wife. So hopefully there's some other people out there that... <laughs> <laughs> that will show some love. <laughs> if you would like to request uh, future topics or future guests for the podcast, by all means, please just visit redtoolhouse.com. You'll see a link at the top, the Pastured Pig Podcast. You click on that. There's just a simple little form there, just a couple couple little things you fill in. I'll get that and, and reach out to you or respond appropriately if it's a topic or somebody you want to suggest we interview, or if you would like to be interviewed yourself. Well, I hope everyone's having a great a great day, great, uh, great week out on the farm. Take care, everyone. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, or to submit topics, or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.